Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. We're your hosts, Lauren and Adam. On this podcast, we help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of our traditional ways of thinking and have deconstructed the religious lenses we once saw the world through. From being in the CCM industry and purity culture to sex positivity and sacred sovereignty, it's been quite the ride. We bring on a wide variety of guests to hear their story and break down topics like religious trauma, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like spirituality, equality, and love. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Mimi Cole. She is a graduate student currently pursuing her master's degree in clinical rehabilitation and mental health counseling. She is passionate about disordered eating and obsessive compulsive disorder and started deconstructing her faith during college. When her experience with scrupulosity were named for her, it was an incredible first step in her healing. She's continuing to do a lot of work around what she wants spirituality to look like in her life and to heal from the religious trauma of being in a constant state of hypervigilance and being afraid of hell. And I know a lot of people can relate, but Mimi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. We're so excited to have you on. I know this episode's coming out first, and then the episode with me and you on your podcast is coming out after. So, you know, everyone gets a lot of Mimi and Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, we're excited to chat with you, and I'm glad Adam gets to be a part of this one. Yes, I can't wait. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so let's just jump right in and talk about your childhood. (laughs) Um, We want to know, so what what kind of faith did you grow up in? We kind of want to hear like your deconstruction story um, and kind of what led you up to this point. Yeah, so um, I grew up um, going to a non-denominational church as far as I remember. So I guess apparently we went to a Methodist church before when I was like one and two. Mm. Um, but my earliest memories are of the non-denominational church that we would continue to go to um, till I was in college. Um, and so I also went to a Christian school, a non-denominational Christian school, um, went to Christian summer camps growing up. Um, and so everything was very much like faith oriented and um, we were always talking about the Bible and guiding us in morals and saving people. And so um, that was kind of my whole life. And I took it really seriously. Um, I would go up for the altar calls a lot and like try and get saved again. You know, I, um, I thought that it was pretty interesting because um, my earliest memories, I think I was somewhat secure and happy, but um, going into middle school and high school, I was kind of more constantly asking for help and confessing and feeling like things were very like, um, needed to be very particular. And so, um, I continued on and I thought it was just a me thing that I was really scared of hell. And I started having intrusive thoughts when I was 14, um, like scary images of hell. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to confess more. Maybe I need to, um, do better at faith. Um, and so I isolated a lot. I was very, um, 
obsessive about reading my Bible every single day, um, multiple times a day and for hours at a time. And if I wasn't reading my Bible, I was like, you know, I should be praying continuously. I should be doing this and that. Um, and eventually it got so debilitating that I couldn't concentrate so well on relationships with other people. And I started getting so panicky and worried about, um, about hell that I wasn't living in the present moment. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of people's deconstruction journeys don't happen all of a sudden, and it didn't really happen all of a sudden for me. Yeah. Um, but I started thinking to myself, you know, I can live in this constant panic and this constant fear, um, or I can maybe choose to kind of a whole opposite approach and just not, not do this whole thing anymore. Yep. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much of an in-between, like I could do faith like more flexibly. Uh, but I think that makes sense because of how scary it felt to me. And so um, I stopped, I played around with stopping going to church every Sunday um, and maybe skipping a week here and there. Um, I played around with um, not reading my Bible every second and, you know, not doing Christian summer camps, asking questions. Um, and slowly but surely, I kind of started to feel a little safer to do that. And and it was still really scary. Um, even after um, years of kind of being being able to not go to church or being able to say, you know, that's that doesn't fit for me anymore, I still was afraid of the consequences. Mm. Wow. Without understanding the, everything that was happening inside your mind, it seems like you would have looked like the perfect Christian growing up. Like, I can't imagine that looking like anything other than like... And that's the problem. A really, really committed Christian. <laughs> and yes. did, you, did you ever get a chance to to actually level with anybody about what you were really going through? Or was it just like a constant like, oh, no, you're doing fine. It's just, you know. People essentially praising you. Like right. for yeah. your, your basically the, the praising you for having the scrupulosity. I don't even know how to use that word, like struggling with scrupulosity or. Yeah. yeah. Like you basically yeah. get praised for that. Oh, definitely. I like, I wasn't a person who shared very much when I was younger um, with other people because I was so scared of it being something wrong with me and something defective about me. And so I was always thinking, you know, other people seem to have this great faith. And of course, it was praised too. Like people said, you know, you always are in the word and you always are praying. And I took that very literally. Um, and so I think it's really can be harmful um, for people who are uh, stuck in obsessive thinking patterns because we just praise that kind of um, engagement that's really not healthy. Mm. Mm. Was it from that same fear that you kept asking to be saved up at the altar? Because I have a, I have a similar experience where I, I was constantly questioning, like, am I going to heaven? Am I going to heaven? I don't know. I feel like I'm constantly diving in and trying to go deeper into my faith and but every chance I got, I was doing altar calls and I just felt like it was constantly just like a physical, actual reminder to everybody else in my life that maybe I wasn't where they thought I was. And But but to me, it was just this constant like uncertainty. Was it that fear for you or was it a need, a need and a want to like dive deeper into your faith or where did that where did that stem from? I think it was that uncertainty that I couldn't accept uncertainty. And so one of the parts of scrupulosity or OCD in general is just not being able to tolerate uncertainty. And so I also just really felt embarrassed sometimes going up because 
I was like, what if people think I'm less faithful because I have to do this all the time? Right. Um, but they were always praising you for that too, of being like, you know, the really humble ones are going to go up. And, mm-hmm. and um, So it's a weird dichotomy kind of uh, navigating that because the good Christians like don't go up, but also the really humble ones do. Um, and so it was really quite an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. It's something that um, when I first learned about scrupulosity, I it immediately clicked with me. Um, it's I definitely struggled with it for a specific time in my life. Um, it actually was from like from really young. I actually had it when I was like really like a kid from like around eight or nine to I mean, I, I struggled with it some in in my teen years, but for the most part, it's I'm, I'm thinking through like when it eased up for me and mm-hmm. it eased up for me when I started like open, like being okay with my quote unquote sinful nature with my boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually, it actually saved me from that because I really did struggle. You know, my, my mom used to call it like, a, I, I was a perfectionist and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and like I struggled with perfectionism, um, or, uh, I mean, back then, just like we would, people would just throw around terms like OCD, you know, like, oh, Mm -hmm. she's just OCD or whatever, you know, without even like looking into any of it, whatever. But I remember that term even being thrown on me. And now, like as an adult, I can look at that, be like, actually, I I don't really struggle with OCD now. And I didn't after I stopped, when it stopped being about religious reasons, I, Mm -hmm. I didn't really struggle with that. So do you think like, in your opinion, can you, can someone have like struggle with scrupulosity, but then not have other forms of OCD? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, scrupulosity more recently, um, they've been talking about how it's, it applies also to more morality. Um, and so sometimes that really can be like, I'm afraid, um, you know, I'm going to be a bad person. I'm afraid of doing bad things. Um, so I think that that's something to explore. And then I also think that there are various themes of OCD. So, I mean, to meet criteria for OCD, it's a little bit specific. And so sometimes in my life, like I probably haven't met criteria necessarily every day. Mm, Yeah. Which is very interesting to me, but I still carry that label OCD because it fits really well. Mm. Um, so I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, whenever I'm just like looking back on my own life, it just makes me, it just makes me question, just makes me wonder like what, if I had, if I knew of that term, if that would have helped me move past it. Honestly, I'm very thankful that I was, I got into relationships because like I said, I think it really saved me from that because I, you know, I was, as somebody who can relate, like I would pray about the, what t-shirt I had to wear that day, yeah. you know, in, in, in should I talk to this person or should I not? And if I didn't get an answer, I was already shy to begin with. But, you know, if I didn't feel like I had an answer, like if I should do something, like I would become kind of paralyzed um, and I could, like couldn't do anything. So I, I very much relate to that. And um, again, that was that was my in my younger years. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is curious. And we're learning more and more about the mental health and all of that. So um, I guess now, now I can know, and now I can like look into it some more, but, um, I do have a question about you getting your master's in mental health counseling. Um, was that spurred on by your own experiences, particularly in college, or was that like kind of something you always wanted to 
to do anyway? I definitely, I didn't know about therapy growing up. Um, and so I definitely, uh, I started therapy when I was 18 or 19 in college and I really loved my therapist a lot. Um, and so I really wanted to hold space for people like she did. And, um, I started off actually as a special education major, um, which looking back is very, very interesting. The more I learn about, uh, neurodiversity and, Mm. Um, just a lot of the um, abusive practices um, of schooling and ABA and things. But um, I, as I um, worked through my own recovery from an eating disorder and from OCD, I was really becoming passionate about doing that kind of work um, long-term. So that's how I kind of came to mental health counseling. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I feel like life just does take us down the paths that, you know, we're kind of meant to follow and follow the like trails. Um, So, in your opinion, then, do you feel like religious trauma or like suffering from scrupulosity, um, do you think that can spur on disordered eating or did it do that for you, like for your personal experience? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, yeah. So I think that church and disordered eating is really interesting, um, like, uh, like go together, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, because in church, a lot of times we're encouraged to um, be holy and be perfect. And, and because our society associates clean eating with perfection and goodness, um, a lot of times that will get really integrated in churches. And so I've heard of churches encouraging keto diets or paleo or the the Daniel plan. Um, And weight loss is really integrated into that um, narrative and that framework. And so um, I always thought that if there was a perfect plan for me, then there was a perfect fork I should be using, a perfect food I should be eating at every time, and I should be a pure, clean eater. Mm. Um, And it's really interesting because... um, as I did uh, some some research later on in life, I found out that a lot of times um, Catholic nuns, uh, way back when in the Middle Ages, would associate uh, deprivation of food with um, holiness or close closeness to God, yeah. and so that kind of early anorexia picture was very intertwined with the religion. Um, and so I think that that really makes sense to me, like depriving yourself of bodily needs, which really plays into just a lot of um, faith practices of depriving yourself of your emotional needs, your bodily needs, your um, all those kind of, kinds of things in the, in the name of holiness, in the name of like being closer to God. And so um, it really did play a role for me because I thought that I was eating clean and I was eating pure. And, and eventually, honestly, I, um, I started to worry about what other people were eating too. And so I was thinking, well, if they want to be close to God and if they want to be clean and pure, then I can't serve them bad foods. Mm -hmm. And so there's this really interesting like um, labeling of foods, like this food is bad and and it ties into morality. And so with the marketing in the um, media, 
with clean eating and bad foods and junk foods, you know, it really starts to get intertwined with, you know, this is good, this is bad, etc. Yeah, that is, in, that is interesting. I mean, even, you know, in the Bible and even other religions do talk about de- like, um, like fasting, fasting, water fasting, or food <laughs> fasting. And yeah. How that can be one of the primary things to bring you to spiritual enlightenment in mm-hmm. a time of need and all of that. Yeah. And to look, look at that from that angle. And also now, you know, whenever you were talking, it made me think like, well, now a lot of the people that I look up to and I, you know, or I follow or even things that I encourage is like follow delight, like follow pleasure, like, mm-hmm. and, um, Till you're like fill fill yourself up basically with the life's pleasures and like what is sparking your joy like all of that <laughs> is like the new this is like I wonder if um it's like a re- in response to the generations and the years and years and years of depri- of deprivation is that the word yeah well yeah yeah depriving yourself of right. needs exactly yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because, I mean, even beyond just the literal fasting, just constantly telling yourself to ignore your own intuition and what your body's telling you. Um, Control mechanism. Yeah, just constantly telling (laughs) you basically that your body is wrong and that Mm -hmm. your body is is communicating to you improperly and your needs will be met by the Lord and all of that kind of narrative I think is just, it, it, it just constantly is divorcing you from your own identity in your body constantly talking about how the flesh is sinful and talking about how any any sort of acting on your desires is is bad and against god it just i feel like it must all amalgamate into a lot of different um just control mechanisms that um can become problematic over your own body yeah Definitely. And, you know, I was reading this book called Leaving the Fold, and it's really, really good. Um, And it talked about uh, some of the manipulative practices that sometimes go into church theology, um, especially with that mindset of like, I am bad and wrong without the Lord. And like, I was born sinful, um, can be really harmful for people because you're constantly having to fight yourself and you're constantly being told that your thoughts are bad, which is a really hard one. Um, and sometimes you can't control your thoughts or you can't control your hunger um, unless you nourish yourself, you know? And so that, that um, mindset can be really hard. Yeah. So then was, was the deconstruction of your faith and moving away from the practices that you'd grown up with, did that align with, recovery from disordered eating and from scrupulosity or how did that fall into place? Yes, definitely. So at first I sought out a Christian team um, of like a therapist and a dietitian and things. Um, And it was interesting because um, they were telling me things that, that kind of seemed opposite to what I was doing in alignment with what I thought was like good for spirituality, um, if that makes sense. And so uh, they were like, you know, eat uh, foods that satisfy you and eat foods that make you happy. And I was like, well, like, should I be engaging in pleasurable things? Like, if my mind and my body are deceiving me, then maybe I should just be strict and um, in in alignment. And and the treatment for scrupulosity is really hard. Um it's exposure and response prevention. And a lot of the work is doing things that seem 
really uh, counterintuitive. So the goal is to bring you in a closer relationship to God, if that's your um, your final goal, you know. Um, but some of those exposures might be like writing curse words in the Bible or skipping Ooh. church or, yeah, it's intense. <laughs> it's really wow. Um, and the reason that we do that is that we want to people to understand that like, no matter what you do, um, it's like, you're able to have a relationship with the Lord if you want to. Um, and, and I think the thing is like, you're constantly thinking about, for example, curse words when you're reading the Bible, then it's a really good exposure to be able to just actually write them. Um, because you're already constantly like, you know, I'm thinking this and it's a bad thing. Um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does. And especially when, um, I was first publicly deconstructing, I actually got that a message, you know, several messages, um, <laughs> asking how to go about, like, how do I start deconstructing? I'm just so afraid of, you know, of hell or punishment or of God, you know, whatever the yeah. case may be, just this major fear. And I, I love the, the, like tactile things to do, like the things to like give people advice, like writing curse words in the Bible or skipping <laughs> church. I think those are really like, that's, that's awesome. I like mentally took a note of that because that's something that I hear we, we get asked all the time. Well, and a lot of your journey into deconstruction required that same shock it factor. Did. It did. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that one, but I, I, but I did at the same time do, that is what I did. I, I started going to a progressive church and then I decided I didn't want to go to that church anymore. And I also started swearing and playing with what that felt like to me and like saying little things here and there. And like, honestly, the, 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 um, spiritual practice of saying fuck, <laughs> it's literally like, you know, I send my friend those memes all the time, but like that it's, it, it's a real thing for people, especially if they've come, they're coming from like a religious background. Like it's an actual spiritual practice to like liberate yourself from, you know, within your own mind of like the bondage of like what words are bad and good. And anyway, so, um, yeah, I, I did those things, but I almost didn't know I did them because of my, like me struggling with scrupulosity. So that's interesting that you said that like gives me a better picture of that. Um, so, okay. I know we keep on saying disordered eating, right? And that is the (laughs) way I, but for those who may not know, maybe they, you know, grew up hearing eating disorder, having an eating disorder versus disordered eating. Why do we, can you tell the listeners, like, why do we use the term disordered eating over having an eating disorder? Yeah. I mean, I use both terms. Um, I think one thing that's important to point out is that eating disorder criteria can be really narrow. Um, and so sometimes you might not fit criteria for, um, a diagnosable eating disorder, but still be really struggling with, um, eating disorder behaviors. Mm. And so, um, disordered eating is a little more of an inclusive term to the vast, like, great amount of people who are struggling. Um, And then I think it's important too, because it's kind of a good uh, entryway for people to say like, I'm struggling. Sometimes people will say I'm struggling with my relationship with food Mm. and that feels more um, approachable. uh, Yeah. Approachable and like resonates with more people than saying like, Oh no, I don't have any disorder. Like I'm not thin or I don't purge every day. Um, 
really not what an eating disorder necessarily is. It can be, yeah. um, but it's really, um, it really affects millions of people um, in, in lots of different body sizes, gender identities, religions, etc. Yeah. No, I love that. It gives it passive language, which I think is really important in a lot of these conversations, whether it's whether it's the way that you're approaching conversations with those that are questioning what it is you're deconstructing and the way you're moving mm-hmm. or just the way that you speak to yourself about yeah. the things that you're struggling with or the, the or the ways that you're growing even. Definitely. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about like the language that we use and how that either invites people into um a different story or excludes people. Mm, yeah. And we're definitely going to have a um a trigger warning obviously for the beginning of this episode. Um because you know, I do want to ask some questions that might be like hard for some people to hear or they may not want to even like, you know, listen to the episode. And that's fine. Um but if if you could is could you give us like a couple examples of like how disordered eating can differ from one to the other like what are some like more hidden disordered eatings because as someone who like for me I often look for the loopholes of how I'm not struggling you know like Mm -hmm. you were just kind of talking you're like well I don't fit all the criteria so no you know that's not me um I know a lot of people especially again coming from a religious background find loopholes of how like you know they're they're on the like good side like they're fine they don't have to worry about it like it's it's all good so um, yeah. What are some like, how does disorder eating look different um, for people? Yeah. So the one thing I'll talk about that I think will be really helpful to answer this question is a diagnosis that's not in the um, diagnostic and statistical manual that therapists and psychologists use to diagnose eating disorders, but they do treat it in treatment centers. It's well recognized by dietitians, um, et cetera. Um, and it's called orthorexia nervosa. Um, And orthorexia is an obsession with clean, right, pure, healthy eating. Um, And so I um, struggled with orthorexia for a couple of years um, really badly. And so what it looks like, for example, is um, making, quote, healthy swaps. And so, you know, being so uh, rigid about I have to eat the brown rice instead of the white rice Mm -hmm. or I have the root vegetable instead of the carb, et cetera. Um, And then other things include only preparing your foods a certain way. So maybe saying I only eat raw foods or baked foods, et cetera. Um, Turning down social events because you're afraid of what's going to be served there or you don't know what's in the ingredients. Um, And it can make you really doubtful. So you might say like, are you sure that doesn't have, um, you know, white flour in it or refined flour or something? Um, Cutting out food groups like carbs or fried foods is not a food group, but cutting out um, (laughs) ways of things being prepared um, and and reading labels for a long time. I know I spent like hours in grocery stores reading labels um, and just honestly having a relationship with food that's rigid and that um, affects, you know, your cognition. So you're constantly thinking about, uh, am I going to be a bad person for eating this or am I a good person for eating that, judging people um, based on uh, what they eat, etc.? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, but Adam and I eat, do eat plant-based and that's just a personal (laughs) choice and ethical choice we made like five and a half years ago. Um, and it is interesting because especially when you first, you know, choose to go plant-based or, you know, whatever, um, you do have to read ingredients and if you choose to do that, whatever, but it's literally the reason why I, um, 
I choose to eat honey <laughs> um, because it is not vegan. You know, it's not like it doesn't perfectly fit the bill. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, I think that's important um, to like that. And then other little like if something's like randomly like um, like uh, the red food dye or whatever it is, there's something <laughs> that's also not vegan. I don't I don't know. Um, I I do not worry about that. I do not stress about that. Um, I think when I first, you know, went vegan, it was a lot of that. I was very excited about it. So of course I had that going on for me, but, um, it was just like a, a, like a clean, um, that like what you were saying, like kind of, I was like hyper fixating on like it being pure, like this, like Mm -hmm. the, the purity of the, the vegan food or whatever it was I was consuming. Um, and, I think that, yeah, that was a time where maybe I struggled in that way. Um, but yeah, now I just choose to make conscious decisions to not perfectly eat. And I think that's like, it's really helped um, just relax the way I approach food. Yeah. And it's really a lot about flexibility and intention, right? So if someone's at a pizza place and they choose a salad, Maybe they're craving a salad that day and that's fine. As long as it's not about, I can't have that because I don't want to gain weight or I can't have that because I'm afraid of being a bad person. And so really equating that morality with the food that we eat and the ways that we nourish our bodies and pleasure ourselves is can be harmful. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I was... I love your Instagram. Um, so I, you, you know, I'm always like, I'm scrolling through your Instagram on my, on the deconstruct page. I'm always like stalking everybody on that page. Um, but yeah, so I, I love the work that you do and everything that you are. Um, you are, all your graphics are so great. They're easily, they're digestible and informative. Um, so you do a really great job. And one of the things that, you know, you talk about is, um, you know, weight and how it's, it's not a good indicator, um, of recovery. And can you explain like why that's true? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I love Instagram. So it's really, it's really a great space for me for the most part. Um, yeah. yeah, So weight, um, the BMI was created by, um, I believe either a physician or mathematician, but he wasn't like a medical doctor and it was meant to collect, um, like data about just like um, you know, what, what people's weights were and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so for example, uh, weight and height just tells you a number. It really doesn't tell you about your lab works. It doesn't tell you what you're eating or how much you're eating. It doesn't tell you, um, your bone density or, um, your amount of exercise or movement. Um, so it really doesn't tell us much except for this number that we keep using, a lot to tell people's health. Um, another thing about health that is really important is that people should be respected no matter if they're healthy or not. And consider that um, access to health can be really limited, especially that ideal picture of health. And so um, we started to equate thinness with health a lot um, because um, it's actually rooted in a lot of um racial uh, inequities. And so what that means is basically that people wanted a way to just differentiate themselves. Um, So for example, like some races are healthy at higher weights than other races. Um, 
And so people said like, oh, you know, I noticed that uh, African-Americans, for example, are a little larger. Um, and so they were like, let's, let's do this thing where, where we don't want to be large anymore like those mm-hmm. people. We want to distinguish ourselves. Um, and then the medical research came later that, um, quote, weight wasn't healthy, weight gain. Um, mm. But a lot of problems with that is the um, the way the studies are done. So long-term weight loss isn't very effective. It's about 5% effective. And um, that doesn't account for, like, how are you maintaining your lower weight, which is probably going on different diets or um, over-exercising, maybe having an eating disorder. Um, and then also, uh, with access to health, for example, so chronic illness, um, means that sometimes you might not ever achieve that perfect picture of health. Um, or, uh, you can be really healthy in a larger body and that's like perfectly okay. But I think we're moving away from this idea that like, oh, you can be fat and healthy. Um, and then you can be respected because you're healthy. Um, because this idea of like health is really exclusionary sometimes. Mm. How do you think we should better include uh, all genders into this conversation? Because it's been so focused on women, um, but we know all humans can suffer from disordered eating. So how do we best include everyone? Hey everyone, want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, including people in research because we really value research as a society sometimes, which is very interesting. Like, (laughs) I think, um, you know, people will say, oh, like this research backs up weight loss, but this research also backs up like vaccines and then people are like oh no like it backs up one but not the other um (laughs) so um i think includes including people in research so having more trans and non-binary people in academia and in research and funded for studies um i think it's important to um think about body image and the specific ways that it affects trans and non-binary people and um lgbtq plus individuals um and so thinking about like uh, um, appearing androgynous, for example, or like how hormone therapy might affect your weight or your appearance, mm-hmm. um, fitting into a binary look, um, like either a male or female type of look, instead of kind of considering that looking a certain way doesn't make you a certain gender identity. Right. Um, and, and I think just, there was this documentary, I'm trying to think of the name, I'm, spl- I'm blanking, but um, it was really great on Netflix and it kind of talked about how like we need to hear more experiences of individuals in these communities because as many LGBTQ plus people as there are in the world is as many experiences of LGBTQ people there are um, because everybody's experience is unique and individual. Um, and so it's important to have a lot of representation, um, both from the perspective of participants in studies and people who are conducting the studies as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, what do you think are some of the most important parts of recovery? Ooh, 
from OCD eating disorder or general? Well, it could be in general. I was I was talking of um, an eating disorder, but actually you can answer both. Yeah. Um, for eating disorder recovery, I think um, one of uh, two things I'd say. So the first thing is to reframe your idea of recovery. Um, so uh, some people believe in being recovered in that definition of I never have thoughts anymore. And that's a really high expectation mm. to never have right. disorder thoughts anymore. Um, but I think uh, a more plausible understanding of being in recovery is that you might need support for a long time or for the rest of your life. That's okay. Um, you might uh, not have access to care, which will make your recovery look different. Um, you know, thinking about what does recovery look like for individuals? Um, because if you have more marginalized identities, then it's going to be harder to meet that picture of recovery that people sometimes take on. Um, And so I think that's really important. And then having support. Um, I love, I'm a big fan of support groups, um, having a team. So having a therapist, a dietitian, um, like a nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, um, or maybe a psychiatrist for medical management um, can be really, really helpful. And uh, following accounts that are more body positive and body accepting and resilient um, instead of ones that make you feel bad about yourself. Um, and then for OCD recovery, um, always exposure and response prevention, working with someone who specializes in that treatment approach um, and recovery from OCD. Also just like recognizing that the thoughts, the intrusive thoughts don't necessarily go away. I mean, I've heard that they do for some people, which is really amazing. And tell me what you're doing. (laughs) But I think having more expectations around being able to use your tools and your coping mechanisms instead of saying, you know, I'll never have a disordered thought again or I'll never have an intrusive thought again. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about how your deconstructing has informed the way that you moved into uh, work in therapy. But I'm curious, has, has... the work in therapy and understanding the mind and and working with people and seeing experiences has that affected your your journey uh, through all of this religious deconstruction as well? Yes, definitely. Um, it's been really helpful because the more I learn about um, setting boundaries and asking questions and how it's normal for like developmentally to um, explore different relationships, it's normal to um, not have firm set beliefs. Um, I feel like I'm relearning how to be a kid again and go through those developmental stages. Yeah. And it's really kind of, um, kind of crazy because a lot of things that I think kids do, I find myself doing if that, like, um, mm-hmm. having a rebellious stage with my parents, um, like that's so delayed for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. Seriously. Same. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, what is this? And I'm like, well, I never really had that adolescent, like, questioning phase and exploring different things and messing up and getting it wrong because I was so scared of not being perfect. Yeah. Um, And so definitely the more I learn in therapy, the more I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe it's okay for me to not be perfect. And maybe the things I was going through were so normal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm definitely in my wildest, most rebellious stage I've ever been in my whole life. <laughs> and I'll be turning 28 this month. So. We're, we're just revisiting imaginary friends and <laughs> yeah. uh, really rooting into just this angsty teen stage. We really are. <laughs> yes. I love that angsty vibe. Like, I really love Olivia Rodrigo and I'm feeling so many things. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so, okay. You're then, do you still struggle with your fear of hell is that something that still comes up for you like how do you how do you navigate that if if it comes if it still comes up oh definitely I um it's interesting because it was really really scary in my high school and college years and it was really hard to start doing therapy because I was afraid of um of letting go of religion and 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 losing security Mm. um but the more therapy I did, the more I read about deconstruction work, um, the more I asked questions and um, started to get curious about these kinds of things, the more the fear started to kind of fade a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I would get really panicky, especially even in um, when I moved here last year, I would be really anxious about like end times and about the rapture and... Um, so I'd be driving maybe and be like, should I pull over just in case the rapture comes and, wow. you know, something's really scary or I'd be in class and think like, should I even complete this test? Because what happens if I need to go be praying or something? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really debilitating. And I started learning how to practice pausing um, when I had those fears and not doing anything about it. Um, so if I had a thought about um, end times, I might say, okay, let me take some deep breaths and let me pause for a minute before I make any decisions about going to read my Bible or going to pray to make it feel better. Um, and the more I think you put that distance between the thought and the actions after, um, the more it's it becomes a little more peaceful, um, which is really nice because I never thought that was something that I was really attached to. And, and then I started questioning like, you know, there's either heaven or hell, which is such a big binary. And I was like, I don't really want to be like worshiping all day in heaven. So (laughs) (laughs) we talk, we, we've talked about that. I think we talked about that in the episode that will be coming out with you. Right. I think we talked about that. (laughs) I'm like, that doesn't sound quite like hell. I've never heard someone say though, that heaven and hell is a gigantic binary. And I, Mm -hmm. I've never, I, have you thought about that, Adam? In that, I mean, not in, in that language. Those words, yeah, because it is. I mean, that's it is like another. Yeah, there is thing no, there was, is no alternative option. Which it's, it's just something I talk about more in the ident, the idea of a relationship. Um, most often, just because a lot of the conversations I end up having is like, well, God will never force you into relationship because that would just be an unhealthy relationship if He was commanding you to love you, and and then I'll come back with, well, it's an unhealthy relationship to have you strapped to a torture table and say, love me or get tortured for the rest of eternity. And I yeah. think I think even that kind of narrative and constantly trying to compare it to heaven and hell or a relationship with God, I think trying to compare those things to the way that we interact with one another here on earth is always inevitably going to lead into a binary mm. just because I feel like it, we're still so evolutionarily young that we really only know live, die, happy, sad, uh, 
pain or freedom. It's just, I feel like in so many ways we're, we're still just in such a young mind that Mm. we don't really have the capability of really processing the idea of anything other than binaries. And I think it's so important that right now in the world, we're moving past the need for that a yes or a no or a black or a white. And we're really questioning a lot of spiritual um, realities and we're questioning the way that we treat one another um, and the way that we see and identify one another in the world. It's just, I feel like we are really making healthy steps and actually evolving our species so much just by allowing each other and encouraging each other into stepping into really expanding our understanding of even just something as, as simple as heaven and hell. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. And I think we're doing that a lot with like gender. And I think it's being more expanded to to other areas, which is great. Yeah, for sure. Okay, there's, I have pretty much one last question for you. Um, it's something that like, I, I like to ask people. Um, but like with the work that you that you do, whether it's just for you and your personal life, um, something you've accomplished or the work that you do, you know, for the community you've built and your Instagram and, um, getting your master's degree. What is some of your proudest moments? Wow. That's a good question. Um, I think having difficult conversations with my parents, um, and advocating for myself, um, and I think, uh, hmm. I'd say being able to not go to church, for example, or to, um, to stand up for myself and, and be able to say things that maybe my healthiest self should want, but maybe my current self is like, I don't know, um, if that's what I really want, but I'm, I'm going to go go forward with what I think my healthiest self would want. Um, and so I think also just, um, doing work in therapy, like exposures has been really, really hard. And I'm really proud of myself for, um, for leaning in and trusting the process. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm proud of you too. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Those are some hard, those are some hard things. I understand, especially the parent thing. That's very difficult. Um, I was just talking with a a friend uh, about that. Um, actually, in my DMs, I was just chatting with this friend who, you know, when it comes to the parents, it's like you care about them. So that there's grace and space you want to have for them, but also the healing process of not giving a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there's that balance. So, yeah, p- parents are hard. So, yeah, I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, personal plug time. How can people Ooh. find you? How can people get in touch with you if that's okay? Um, how can people find your work? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at the.lovelybecoming. Um, my website is www.mimi-cole.com. Um, you can email me if you just click, I think if you just click that email button on like Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Twitter too, uh, the lovely becoming. So, um, yeah, lots of fun places. Awesome. Well, like, you know, always, we will put all the information in the episode 
about section. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I hope this conversation was helpful um, and share it with your friends. Go find Mimi's uh, accounts and go support her and her work. And as always, thank you for listening. We love you. And until next time. Bye. Bye.